Uh, let me read our scripture for us. Can I? Comes out of John chapter two. A reminder again: we're in the season of Epiphany. The Epiphany season is the focus of lights. I like to think of it as a dramatic stage rendering of the life of Jesus. And somebody, somebody is behind the the lights, and they're keeping the lights focused, which helps us to understand the story better. And in the season of Epiphany, the the story is illuminated by the person of Jesus. That's what the, the season of lights is all about. So here we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill these jars with water. And they filled them up right up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had been become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the scripture tells us, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This circumstantial story, this story that has a, a it has a narrative to it that's operation operational. This can be described simply in a headline. They were at the party and the wine ran out. Simple. It must have been an unimaginable embarrassment to the two families being joined together in marriage. Jewish weddings were traditionally long and elaborate glorious affairs that brought the whole community together and the wine ran out before the party pooped. John tells us that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding in the small village of Cana, just a short hop from Nazareth, his hometown. And either the bride or the groom must have been a friend of the family or even kin, perhaps they were related since Mary was there. We're not told whether Jesus and the disciples were invited as guests, officially on the guest list, or whether they tagged along on their mother's invitation. It doesn't matter because they were guests at the party and the wine ran out. Most of us know how that feels. Most of us, uh, it comes to us in an occasional feeling of great sadness, that descends upon us like a dark shadow. 
Maybe it's the sense that we have spent all there is to spend and we have no more reserves to replenish us. It's the deep sense of poverty of the soul. Maybe it's the emptiness we feel in the middle of our lives when we know we should be more complete. But all we know is the feeling that loss, we cannot change. Most of us have an idea of what it means for the party of our lives to wind down and the wine of life to run out. This was the first miracle in Jesus' ministry. He was in Cana, some nine miles from his hometown of Nazareth, and he already recruited the disciples. They were already in place. They were with him. They began to follow him for the rest of his life. And it must have been one of their first outings out together, but nothing much had yet happened. Where do you begin when you are the Messiah? Where do you start? What is your first move? What is your first decision, your first act? action. Everything has a beginning. All great things start somewhere. Perhaps this story helps us understand even Jesus didn't quite know where to begin. No matter, they were at a Jewish wedding feast and the wine ran out. And Jewish weddings were wonderful affairs. And marriages were occasions to celebrate and to impress. The whole neighborhood came together. The whole community would show up. And in those days, as they are today, the rich always seem to have enough to throw their lavish parties with little concern given for cost. But the poor, like they do today, had to worry about expenses. The poor generally ate less meat and drank less wine in their everyday lives, but they would have to save and uh, scrimp for months, maybe years, in order to afford the wedding that would feed the whole community in just the right way. There were expectations that had to be met. And despite the sacrifice, family and friends would pass harsh judgment on those who could not carry a wedding off in style. This was a big, big deal in the community. Tender lamb and young calves and every delicacy would be served, and the wine would flow freely. And then there was the length of the celebrations, as much as seven days of feasting and partying. So you can imagine the financial obligation on the families uh, for feeding your guests for that long. One scholar humorously, humorously suggested that Jesus' disciples might be the reason why the wine ran out. I like that. It's something to play with this notion, this idea. Maybe it was maybe it was amazing they didn't run out of more of the food and everything else. And that Jesus and his mooching buddies might have provided. But all the innuendos about the disciples and the suggestion of their poor manners are beside the point in the story. None of it matters because the story is rather simple. They threw a party and the wine ran out. It was a terrible disgrace for the family and something had to be done. Apparently no one could see the whole event as it happened better than Mary could see it. From the way the story is told, it doesn't matter to have been something maybe even knew about. It's not suggested that the whole crowd, you know, oh my, we ran out of wine. That may or may not have happened. 
I can imagine the wine steward tried to get close to one of the fathers to say, we're running out of wine. And for that to be a problem for one of the fathers to figure out, he must have done it with some sense of care, whispering this news, this tragic news to the one who's paying the bill. And so few of the, the guests may not have even known what had happened. But somehow Mary overheard the conversation between the steward and the father about this shortage. And immediately and quite naturally, she called upon her Messiah son, isn't that handy? Her Messiah son who had not put, uh, found a way yet to get started and who seemed very unwilling to step in and fix things. He responded to her in what we would call a typical Jewish idiom that sounds awkward in its literal translation. What of this to you and what of this to me? That's the way it's translated. That's what he said to her. Whose business is this? Who's stepping in to whose problem? It was probably his way of saying, why should this problem be yours and, and to be mine? Why is this something we should step into and do? And I suspect he was aware she was trying to get him to act. She was provoking him to act when the problem was not really his to fix. That's a good idea for all of us who are fixers in life. We see a problem and we don't even think twice about stepping into the issues of the problem uh, and taking it on and doing something with it. We jump in and we take over the problem of others and try to fix them, whether they want us to or not. It's almost comical and it's predictable. The only problem is there are lots of folks who have no intention of fixing their own problems because they know there are plenty of fixers in the world who will do their work for them. So they hold back. They pause just a moment so that the fixers might have just enough opportunity to step in and to take things on. Sometimes fixers end up in marriages with not fixers. This is the way they come together. This is the place where they meet. Maybe other entangled relationships are just like this, where the fixers and the non-fixers hang together. They find a reason to be around one another. And it's another problem uh, to go around and to intervene in the lives of others. What I'm suggesting is that Jesus wasn't trying to be rude to his mother. It sort of comes across that way, but maybe that's the wrong reading. He was simply trying to make sure he didn't move beyond his own boundaries in a rush to take over somebody else's problem. Notice in this story, Mary doesn't pay him any mind whatsoever. She doesn't pay attention to what he says. She doesn't engage him with the argument he's trying to make. She totally ignored him. In fact, she skipped over the part. They might've even argued about what to do. She could have asked him, Jesus, would you come over here and take care of this embarrassing problem for these nice people? She could have done that, she did not. And Jesus, sensing another opportunity for his overly pushy mom, wanted to get him to do something nobody else wanted him to do. He might have answered back, no, I won't. How do arguments go like these in your family? So she immediately answered him. 
Yes, you will. No, I won't, he says. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Jesus, don't talk back to me. This is your mother speaking to you, and you know the routine. This is the part that's missing, of course, in this story, is this exchange between mother and son. But Mary ignored his resistance. She didn't even make space for it. She didn't allow for it. And instead of standing there and circling in, in, in circular logic, one filling in the line for the other, she simply motioned to the stewards in charge of the libations and said directly to him, do whatever he says. She cut to the chase. She cut Jesus off at that point and any kind of resistance he might have argued. In her sweet and pushy way, Mary gave us the first lesson on what it means to be a modern day disciple. Do whatever he tells you to do. No more, no less. We're told to go out into the world with the words of Mary to do whatever we're told to do whenever Jesus speaks. Maybe that's the great lesson that's in this story. Is this the first example in the Bible of WWJD? Maybe. It's the acronym of a new generation, once again, who are willing to carry these letters around as a reminder of this very story. What WWJD, what would Jesus do? And the answer is do whatever he tells you to do. It's a wonderfully intriguing story about how the Christian church has interpreted the making of wine out of water over the years. Some denominations, it's no big deal, but this is an argument that's been waged and carried on for oh, generations in Baptist life. We Baptists have not quite known what to do about it. I remember in seminary hearing this, that it really was not turned into wine. It was turned into some kind of a non-alcoholic fancy juice of one kind or another. We've made a huge hermeneutical deal about the problem of drinking. And so we've done these fancy hermeneutics about how to interpret this story. Unfermented wine, well, it, it does exist. It doesn't appear to be that in this particular story. The wine steward gives us the clue as to what actually took place. And we've done some horrendous things as Baptists to this position of scripture consistent with our own views and inconsistent with the story itself. So why not let the story tell its own tale to us? Mary, overly involved in fixing things, set Jesus up to provide the remedy. She moved around him in such a way to provoke him to action. And his opposition was not that he had a problem with wine, but that he felt pushed into making the first move. And so he made a faint-hearted attempt with his earthly parent to say, don't rush me. My hour has not yet come. It's not time, he seems to be saying to her, which almost sounds like maybe I'm not ready. I'm not sure whether Mary simply overpowered him or outmaneuvered him, as mothers often do, 
or whether he just needed a little nudge to get started. But what happened is extraordinarily truthful about what took place. The steward was told to supply somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water in six large stone pots. And somewhere between the well of man's efforts and the divine initiative to see that the vitality of life is renewed, a wine of such rich red sweetness was brought forward that it stunned even the steward who could not help but say, everyone serves the good wine first. And then after everyone is a little bit buzzed, out comes the cheaper wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And does this story have meaning for us today here in our own time? And you bet it does. When we find we've done nothing in our power to make our lives complete, all we discover is our total inability to keep the wine of life of our lives from drying up. And when it's gone, the party dries up as well. We find we wither inside because our vitality is as parched as the desert sands. We know that life should be full of richness and that we should be able to savor the experiences of life and to be full and to be happy. But all of us are as dry as the bottom of those stone pots. We must come to Jesus to be filled and we must realize he is the one who can convert what little we have with the rich red blood of his own life. Don't you see it? This story is the first miracle of Jesus' ministry, but it was not his last. This event, something that few at the wedding even noticed was the metaphor for his whole life. It's a picture of what his whole life would become. Jesus, the life of the party, wants you to be filled with all the goodness and joy that God intended life to be. For you see, the deep richness of the wine Jesus gives you is the proof God loves you and wants you to be happy. Heard that somewhere? The invitation to the party is God's way of inviting us to the table of a communion with Christ so rich and so compelling, we spend the rest of our days learning to live out of that kind of fullness. It's the kind of life that John Killinger would call the banqueting spirit. So come, all you who are weary and find rest by joining the party where the wine of God's love never runs out. Amen.